0: You're listening to the Pastor Ryder Podcast, episode 17. I want to start off by saying thanks to those of you who have reached out to me with encouragement about the podcast. I'm really excited to hear that so many people are enjoying it and look forward to hearing from more. I've been working on scheduling podcast interviews for June and July, and I'm really excited about some of the guests I plan on having. Today's episode is just me, though, and I talk about a topic that I've been thinking a lot about over the last year or so, cliches. Why do they show up in our writing, and why are they so hard to avoid? Hope you enjoy. If you spend much time reading advice on writing, you will start to hear much of the same advice. Avoid the passive tense, strong, soft, and repeated, omit needless words. Show, don't tell. Watch out for those misplaced modifiers. But maybe one of the most quoted pieces of writing advice goes simply, avoid cliches like the plague. It's so often repeated because so much writing is laden with tired and overused cliches. As a guide for our discussion of cliches, I want to use an example highlighted in a past issue of The New Yorker. It's a real sentence from a 1989 article in the Boston Globe. Here's the example. In the face of mounting pressure to gut or eliminate the IRS, it continues to shoot itself in the foot by biting the hand that feeds them. I think we are all in agreement that something is very wrong with that sentence. So first, give yourself a break. Every writer uses cliches, even published writers. Apparently, some even make it past editors. We can't help ourselves, and by the end of this episode, I think you'll understand why. By my count, and it's hard to count because the cliches technically overlap in that example, there are at least five cliches being used in a single sentence. Let's use a basic definition for identifying a cliché in writing. This week, I've been reading Oren Hargrave's book, It's Been Said Before, A Guide to the Use and Abuse of Clichés. And yes, there are, in fact, whole books written on clichés. It's actually been a fascinating read. Oren defines a cliché in the opening pages with the definition, a sentence or phrase, usually expressing popular or common thought, that has lost originality, ingenuity, and impact by long overuse. I think that's a helpful definition. It isn't just a phrase that is overused, but also one that expresses a common, overused thought. Usually, it isn't just the grammar that's overused, the thought itself tends to be just as tired. You hear cliches all the time. In this day and age, from the dawn of man, little did I know, it was a dark and stormy night. To be honest, as luck would have it, all bets were off. I could go on and on. There are online lists of cliches that number close to a thousand. So going back to our example, let me pull out some of the cliches. In the face of. That's shorthand for an unavoidable reality. Mounting pressure. Another way of saying something is growing, getting worse. To gut. Now, on its own, the image of gutting something might not be a cliche, but a potentially vivid image. But when it comes to describing governmental budget cuts, gutting the budget is pretty obviously a cliche. Shoot yourself in the foot. Biting the hand that feeds it. Those probably go without much explanation. Saul Stein, in his highly recommended Stein on writing, explains, A cliché is a hackneyed phrase. Stale, trite, banal, commonplace, corny, dull, musty, redundant, repetitious, tedious, threadbare, time-worn, tired, tiresome, worn-out, boring. If you prefer to focus on just one definition, he writes, it should be tired from overuse. Clichés weaken your message, having little or no effect on the reader. Stein continues, Words have power. Words strung together in clichés have lost some or all of their power. Clichés are a sign of a tired mind that settles for a well-worn rut instead of climbing to exciting new heights. Your job as a writer is to energize people, not to put them to sleep. You can see why writers and editors are so adamant about avoiding clichés. They just aren't very interesting. Who wants to come across as a writer with a tired mind, and what's the point of saying what has already so often been said? George Orwell, in a great essay entitled Politics in the English Language, describes two types of cliches. Technically, he's describing them as metaphors, but you'll see the overlap. First are dying metaphors. These are ideas or phrases so common we rarely recognize them as metaphors at all. The phrases have become their own meaning. The Chronicle of Higher Education lists three examples. It isn't brain surgery anything described as being iconic, and anything on steroids. We understand the phrase without having to even imagine the metaphor. Saying, we had debt on steroids doesn't require you to imagine a bank account with vein-popping biceps. You don't have to picture what is being described at all to understand the author's point. The image is completely unnecessary because the cliché has been so often used. Orwell's second type of metaphor are described as famous for being cliché phrases. These are little sayings we use as shorthand in conversations every day. It's not the heat, it's the humidity. A penny saved is a penny earned. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Orwell explains that these overused cliches have an effect reverted to being an ordinary word. We think we are saying something unique, but cliches are defined by their lack of uniqueness. That may be the greatest danger in using cliches. More dangerous than you may realize. We use a metaphor imagining that it conjures up an image, when in truth, its overuse has made the metaphor so ordinary there isn't an image left in it. Writing advice is simple enough. Get rid of them. Delete all the clichés. But I think there is a far more interesting question to ask. As Orwell goes on to explain, Much more is at stake than originality. Clichés pose a deeper threat to every writer. Later on in his essay, Orwell offers this profound warning. If thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. A bad usage can spread by tradition and imitation, even among people who should and do no better. The debased language that I have been discussing is in some ways very convenient. These phrases are a continuous temptation, a packet of aspirins always at one's elbow. This invasion of one's mind by ready-made phrases can only be prevented if one is constantly on the guard against them, and every such phrase anesthetizes a portion of our brain. That is Orwell's way of saying, if you aren't careful, your cliches will actually drain you of insight. They will make you dumb. Eugene Peterson explains it simply, we cannot be too careful about the words we use. We start out using them, and they end up using us. So why do we find it almost impossible to write without cliches? Why do so many of them keep appearing in our writing? We know they do nothing for us. Worse, possibly bottom out and corrupt our thinking. But we keep reaching for them. Eugene Inesco, a French playwright, once wrote that this banality is a symptom of non-communication. Men hide behind their cliches, he writes. That's a fascinating thought. Banality, boringness, is a symptom of non-communication of not really having something to say. So we use cliches not because we are lazy, but because we are afraid. Hiding. Wanting to write, but not really knowing what to write, we cover our work with cliches. They allow us to say something without having to really say anything. They let us say things without the risk of saying them. But knowing their schemes, cliches end up exposing us. They reveal that we haven't worked hard enough, haven't thought deep enough, haven't really grasped reality. And being boring is more dangerous than you might expect as well. If you haven't heard of Hannah Arndt, it will be my pleasure to introduce her to you. Arndt was a German-born Jew who wrote on political theory during the 1930s and 40s and on into the post-war period. In 1961, Arndt traveled to Jerusalem on assignment for The New Yorker to cover the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was being tried for war crimes he had committed as an officer in Nazi Germany. Art's reporting led her to the phrase, the banality of evil. And in a story on Art's work, the New York Times explained, when Art heard that Eichmann was to be put on trial, she knew she had to attend. It would be she wrote her last opportunity to see a major Nazi in the flesh. Writing in The New Yorker, she expressed shock that Eichmann was not a monster at all, but terribly and terrifyingly normal. Arndt argued that Eichmann, far from being a monster as the Israeli prosecutor insisted, was nothing more than a thoughtless bureaucrat, passionate only in his desire to please his superiors. Eichmann, the unthinking functionary capable of enormous evil, revealed the dark potential of modern man. Arndt concluded that the worst evil wasn't spectacular, but unremarkably boring, thoughtless. Arndt concluded, evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought, for as soon as thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine the premise and principles from which it originates, it is frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil. The banality of evil is a thought with no real thought beneath it, an idea agreed upon without having ever been considered, truth that has never been lived. The banality of evil is a cliché. Okay, stay with me. You're probably wondering, how did we just jump from my silly cliches to the evil of Nazi oppression? But Art writes explicitly about the way our thoughtless use of language inoculates us to reality, even horrifying reality. She goes on to write, Cliches, stock phrases, adherence to conventional standardized codes of expression and conduct have the socially recognized function of protecting us against reality. That is, against the claim on our thinking attention that all events and facts by virtue of their existence. That is no small claim. Clichés slowly poison us, robbing us of truth. They demonstrate our resistance to reality. Clichés wrap us in a nostalgic safety of preconceived ideas, warmly accepted by readers already in agreement. They say nothing, but assume everything. In other words, clichés make you feel safe. They help you feel like you are understood and are in control of reality. They protect you from dealing with the true complexity of a fallen world. Cliches are a shortcut for getting a handle on a world that doesn't fit neatly enough into our writing. Cliches, I believe, are the work of the devil himself, which may sound a little bit too much like a cliche and a bit dramatic, but I actually think it's true. Cliches take the unique life and identity that God is creating and compress it down into something we can control. The devil is always going around compressing creation into objects for us to use. Clichés sacrifice the relationship with God's full creation for a single-syllable characterization. The mystery of the thing sacrificed for the agreed-upon classification. Clichés are always about control. They show up in our writing because often we are more interested in having appeared to have said something than to have actually said it. We settle for a veneer phrase that looks like real wood but hides a particle board core, like a bargain IKEA dresser. Let's go back to my example sentence for a moment. In the face of mounting pressure to gut or eliminate the IRS, it continues to shoot itself in the foot by biting the hand that feeds it. At stake in that sentence are some pretty monumental ideas. In the face of mounting pressure tries to capture a sense of real conflict. Somewhere, people of real influence are carrying around that pressure to bed at night. Somewhere, real people know that a decision will inevitably have to be made. Somewhere, real people are wrestling with how to act, a real stress-inducing complexity. At stake is the future of the IRS. Some want to, quote, gut it, others to eliminate it altogether. There are real jobs and lives at stake. The real question about power and authority, history, and more complexity then there's the convoluted, mixed metaphor. The IRS is shooting itself in the foot by biting the hand that feeds it. Most readers probably think, yeah, the IRS is completely ineffective. In that case, maybe if used mockingly, the mixed metaphor might have worked. But as it is, I'm not entirely sure what the journalist is trying to say. They have managed to undermine the IRS in a way everyone will inevitably agree with, and at the same time not made any real accusation. What kind of person shoots themselves in the foot while biting the hand that feeds them? Whatever the IRS has done, we don't want any part of it, even though we know nothing more about the IRS than we did at the start of the sentence. You can see why Inesco warned that we hide behind our cliches. We feel like we have said something without having to say anything at all. The cliche protects the author. It garnishes the reaction he sought without the risk of real detail. It leaves no room for debate. Who can disagree with what has so often already been agreed upon? It's no surprise, then, that clichés are the tool of choice for a culture desperately trying to avoid reality. A culture fighting to grasp extremes, obsessed with sound bites, and usually already in agreement with their party before anything has actually been said. Our culture is awash in clichés, and maybe nowhere more than in our political rhetoric. Is there anywhere people are working harder to appear to have said something without exposing themselves to the risk of actually having to say something. Multiple news agencies pointed out how laden with cliches both Trump and Clinton's presidential campaign speeches tended to be. Oftentimes, they use the exact same cliches. The next time you hear a political speech, listen. They're everywhere. Our children deserve the chance to live up to their God-given potential. Small towns are the backbone of this country. This is the most important election in our lifetime all taken from real presidential speeches. Everyone cheers without really knowing what has been said. We live on these cliches. In our jobs, on our TVs, in our conversations around the dinner table, they're easier than trying to say what we really feel, easier than having to really feel at all. If we continue to practice this banal deceit, we run the risk of never understanding what we are actually trying to write, what we actually have, Anne Lamont, well-regarded for her teaching on writing, explains, Most people's intuitions are drowned out by these folk sayings. We have a moment of real feeling or insight, and then we come up with a folk saying that captures the insight in a kind of wash. The intuition may be real and ripe and fresh with possibilities, but the folk saying is guaranteed to be a cliché, stale and self-contained. We waste what we had. We imagine we've improved it, Really, we've covered it with a bushel, snuffed it out. Writing that relies on cliches tends to waste the bit of truth we first had. So Faulkner writes in one of his novels, he remembered his uncle saying how little vocabulary man really needed to get comfortably and even efficiently through his life. How not only in the individual, but within his whole type and race and kind, a few simple cliches served his few simple passions and needs and lusts. If there is any way of writing that a Christian should absolutely avoid, I believe it is the cliché. Unfortunately, us pastors are constantly in danger of their seductive and crowd-pleasing power. Carl Vaders has a great article in Christianity Today entitled, Tired of Being Trite. You should read it. He writes, It is easy to become trite when you're a pastor. After all, we're in constant output mode. Whether we're preaching, teaching, comforting, or just hanging out, we talk a lot. It's not always easy to know the right thing to say, so most of us get into the temptation to find a handful of cliches and repeat them at regular intervals, even if we don't realize we're doing it. Not everything we say can be original, of course, as Solomon reminds us, there's nothing new under the sun, but that's never an excuse to be trite. Us pastors have a bad reputation to want to reduce spirituality down to catchy phrases, These pious platitudes do everything we need them to. They make God an easy concept to grasp and us clever enough to know the way. Maybe it's the cultural pressure to produce Twitter-like sound bites, but I worry it signals something far more subtle. In an occupation that requires us to have so much to say, cliches offer us the same opportunity as politicians. We can appear to have said far more than we really have to say. Cliches allow us the illusion of depth, the veneer of reality. Most pastors have a hundred of them ready at a moment's notice. We consider it a joke that whole books have been written on the things us Christians say. If all this is true, and maybe you think I've gone way too far at this point, but bear with me to use one more cliche, if we really do use cliches to avoid the challenge of reality, then they pose a much greater danger than cheapening our writing. Cliches violate the very reason we set down to write in the first place. Clichés expose us for being more interested in having written than having something to write about. Clichés slowly immunize us to the dangers of reality. They tarnish the small bit of truth we manage to possess. They ruin our thinking before we can write a first word. They blanket our minds with banal rationalities dependent on approval for their power. Clichés get us easily accepted, past the ruthless jab of our insecurities, constantly calling our observations silly and uninteresting. A cliche offers everything a writer should despise. Fool's gold. A real writer does everything in his power not to hide, not in cliches. But don't fool yourself. They'll still find their way onto the page. We can't help writing them. It's our sinful nature. But interrogate them. Hunt them down. Challenge them. Strap them to the table, shine a light in their face, and rough them up if you have to. What are you really trying to say? What are you hiding? Is it really true? If you can't get a confession, don't use it. Let me leave you with this. Your Bible may be the best antidote to the poison of cliché. Its stories are often confusing. Some are hard to understand and worse, some painful to accept. But the Bible's stories are never cliché. Their grasp of reality is never banal. Whatever you consider the Bible to be, it is not popular or overused generalities. Read it carefully and you'll encounter true writers wrestling with truth, never giving in to easy stereotypes. Imagine, what if David had taken the shortcut and offered us only cliches in his psalms? What if instead of, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What if David had hid behind his cliches? What if David had simply given us, I'm following in the Lord's footsteps. With him, I'm good to go. So kick up your heels. Here, the grass is always greener. Everything else is water under the bridge. I sleep like a baby. We take the road less traveled, a chip off the old block. And though I walk through a dark and stormy night, one foot in the grave, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. God's got my back. So stick to your guns. Good things come to those who wait. God rolls out the red carpet. Our enemies eat crow. Hold your head up high, you've got more than you know what to do with. It's too good to be true. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. So welcome home. Home is where the heart is. Happily ever after. Cut the cliches. Write with courage. Say what you really have to say. And now you know why Thomas Mann explained, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. Or why Hemingway encourages... All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 17. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate a review. You can leave one on Facebook or iTunes, but it's a great way for me to get feedback on the show, as well as to help other people find new episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.